0: Welcome to Religiously Literate.
1: I'm Ryan. And I'm Jay. Join us as we explore the diversity of religious belief around the world.
0: What are kami? What is the difference between a shrine and a temple? And why do the Japanese worship their ancestors? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. So today uh, we're going to be talking about Shinto, which I will be the first to say that like, Shinto is new to me. Uh, I studied a lot, and I still feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. So um, we're going to be leaning a little bit more on Ryan's expertise here. I mean, I did read, so I can say some (laughs) things. Uh, But (laughs) I'm just saying I'm going into this. I'm I'm not feeling as strong as I have about the other ones. But that's cool because that's, you know, areas for growth. So some quick facts about Shinto is that it is... uh, japan's largest religion and i'm going to put a little asterisk by religion because we're going to come back and have a short conversation about that but more than 100 million people um, practice shinto which is more than 80 percent of the population of japan amongst those 80 percent of people or more than 80 percent of people who are practicing only a small number actually consider themselves what we would say shintoist So for a lot of people, this is a cultural activity, but few consider it a religious activity. And you can definitely equate this to our Jewish friends, where by far people are much more culturally Jewish than they are originally practicing Jews. So there's a lot of similarity there. And then when you're thinking about the um, Shinto uh, places of worship, which are known as shrines, there's roughly one priest for every five shrines. Um, not every shrine has a priest. So some have a set priest, others share a priest, and some are just, some being the shrines are kept by uh, community members. And it makes sense to distinguish shrines from temples. So a shrine is overwhelmingly a place where Shinto practices happen. And then typically a temple is where you will find Buddhist practice happening in Japan. Now in Japan the two are used interchangeably but for the purpose of this podcast we're just going to focus on specifically if we're talking about a shrine we're talking about Shinto. We won't really be talking about Buddhism a lot but if we do we would mention a temple. Other things to note is that uh, so this is considered to be an indigenous belief system of Japan which is really interesting when we talk about what it means to be indigenous particularly in the field of religious studies since you know that's kind of the core what we're coming from. Uh, it's Called indigenous, and this is here's the official definition. I guess you know for people who may not know what that means. So this term is meant that a religion has emerged naturally within the historical development of an indigenous culture, in contrast to a founded religion, which is based on the teachings of a historical founder. The latter often described as world religions. So that would be your Christianity, your Islam, right? Even Judaism to some extent, although that could be argued, but we won't get into that argument. And this is mostly because they have spread across natural national boundaries to assume a global role. But in contrast, something that is indigenous, such as Shinto, is linked with a single nation, in this case being Japan. So that's kind of the difference and, you know, the importance of being a quote unquote indigenous belief system. Uh, Obviously, as Japanese people have spread across the world, they have taken Shinto with them. but primarily it's people of Japanese descent who are practicing this religion in contrast to something like a Christianity or Islam.
0: Yeah. And I'd like to add part of part of the fact that or part of what makes it um, somewhat contentious to call Shinto um, an indigenous religion in Japan is that there are actually indigenous peoples in Japan that are sort of subjugated in a similar way to indigenous folks in the United States and Canada and around the world. So these folks are called the Ainu and they live um, mostly in the northernmost island of Japan, which I'm pretty sure is Hokkaido. So they have a belief system. Yes, it is Hokkaido. Um, they have an indigenous belief system themselves that is somewhat similar to Shinto, but is not the same. And so in some ways, calling Shinto an indigenous religion can be seen or read as an erasure of these traditions, which is kind of messed up and bad. And there's definitely like a weird history or a not great history um, between the Japanese, the Japanese government and um, the Ainu people
1: um some more general thank you for that some more general information is that uh didn't actually have a name until the right arrival of buddhism in japan so it's actually uh shinto is a chinese word so to speak and it's written using chinese characters so there's the Shen, which means loosely divinity and then um in way of right so way of divinity uh, there's also the the kami that are associated with it well i'm gonna let ryan talk about that more in his section and i will in a second describe kami a little bit in the history but for a long time shinto was distinctly related to just worship of kami Mm -hmm. and kami are loosely translated as spirits and so for a long time it was kind of known as kami no michi which is way of the spirits Well, with that, we will jump into a little bit of history um, about Shinto. Actually, that's a lie. I mean, we're going to talk about the, is it a religion, is it not a religion? So um, from a scholar perspective, or scholarly, I guess is the word here, Shinto is highly contested in terms of whether or not it is a religion, and that's like super up to debate. So what I, are we going to answer if it's a religion? No. As we often say, it will definitely 100% depend on how you define religion. So I would encourage everyone to first go back to our first episode where we talk about the definitions of religion and all the controversy that is associated with that. And we also discuss our own definitions of religion. So I would say start there. Also, it's all dependent on how you define religion. So whether or not this fits into a religion will be up to you. But I will say that some of the... Difficulty in defining it is because it's just so hard to pin down. And so, this is a really good quote that I got from Shinto, a short history that I think really helps to encapsulate the difficulty in Shinto. And, and so, it says, What defines the desperate phenomena of Shinto is not so much shared beliefs, ideas, or moral a- attitudes, but rather a common set of physical symbols and ritual patterns. There is no scripture, no set of dogma, nor even a shared pantheon that could warrant the lumping together of Shinto's multifarious traditions under one label. Rather, practices are identified as some form of Shinto by such markers as the Tori Gate and Shiminawa straw ropes used to demarcate sacred spaces or objects by branches of the evergreen Sakai-ki tree used as offerings or for purification. So there's a lot that is put under the umbrella of Shinto, and not ever, there aren't shared beliefs, right, or rituals. So I think that can make it difficult, one, to figure out what it is, and two, to define it as a religion. So just know, as we're going into this, there's a lot of things that are going on. And if you get lost along the way, that is totally okay. Because I think if you ask two people who consider themselves to practice Shinto, arguably, they aren't going to tell you the same things, right? So just keep that in mind. <clears throat> Anything that you want to add before we jump into history, Ryan?
0: Um. No, you, you did it. And your pronunciations, for as far as I know, were right. So.
1: Oh, awesome. Okay, so <laughs> now that I've told you that it's really complicated to define what Shinto is, now I'm going to tell you that it is equally difficult to define the history of Shinto. So there are, kind of, there are a lot of opinion on this. We're going to branch them into two. What is historically taught from a Japanese perspective, what scholars say. What is historically taught from a Japanese perspective is super easy and basically is that Shinto has been with us since the dawning of time and it has always existed. Super easy. Ryan is going to go into the creation narrative when he talks in a second, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the contrasting narrative of what scholars say. So scholars pretty much argue that, that, that the idea of Shinto both as a term and as a concept that we know it today as much as we can define it are somewhat relatively new now shinto the word is much older and overwhelmingly it seems to be that for the longest time shinto our concepts of shinto have uh, specifically been related to kami worship and that for as far as we know has been around for forever but shinto as we know it today is something different adds more elements and that is um, more of a modern creation. So when you're looking at um, historical narratives from a Japanese perspective, typically they follow a three-part plot. Um, So there was ancient purity, uh, and then we go to a medieval age in which Shinto was mixed with Buddhism and Confucianism. And then finally there's a restoration and return to authentic purity in modern times. And if you kind of look at this three-part narrative, this is actually pretty common amongst most religions where there was this perfect time when either the founder or the beginning of creation, somebody came in and messed it up. Uh, Typically, these are foreign invaders or foreign influences. And so the biggest push now, if it hasn't already happened, is to restore that time at which it was great. You see this throughout Christianity, particularly in Islam, um, even to a certain extent, Judaism, right? Like the constant recreating to get you back to that perfect time so that you can be doing what God wants. It's all across the board in quote unquote Western or Abrahamic faiths. No different here. But scholars argue that like that's not really how it happened. When we try to pin down like the specific teachings, rituals, or beliefs that have constituted Shinto throughout the centuries, it's it's super hard. Some scholars have Cata- or attempted to categorize Shinto into shrine Shinto sex and Shinto and uh, folk Shinto and others have added imperial Shinto uh, which is specifically referring to imperial rituals focusing on kami state Shinto and Shinto derived new religions and I believe that you will discuss this a little bit in your section right correct mm-hmm. right? yep but the question remains the both is are these categories legitimate and what's the relationship to each other so how do we get to Shinto? As I mentioned before, kami have existed for the longest time. That's been a thing that's th- been throughout Japan. But Shinto itself has a lot of various influences, particularly from Chinese Buddhism. So it's not until the late 14th or early 15th century that for the first time, the word Shinto is written down and becomes something that, is, that has a specific meaning. And at this time, it really has more of a sectarian um, sense, and it's, re- and it's now referring to a distinct practice. Now, Shinto, I think, had been in the canon before, but it didn't have its distinct term. And this is the first time that we get that it means distinct teaching and practice. And this was first used by um, Nihon Shoki. And he, I believe there was a text that he was writing about like, how to be a good person or something, and writes the word Shinto in it and this really starts to kick off a series of events that leads us to shinto as you know it today according to scholars and so you can definitely read it as you know this is what is happening because of buddhism i'm trying to move away from that and and so so that happens you know late 14th early 15th century but we also get another text called the great truth of shinto this is in 1476 by kanetomo Dai Don't hold me to pronunciation. <laughs> and so this actually, this great text, I will spare you the history, but basically this text is written and inspires a lot of people. And so they start writing more and more texts and we start to get a more defined version of what Shinto is and what it means. Now, of course, through various um, imperial changes, wars like this, it has influences on the state, and that changes it. But this by many is seen as like the first text that really inspires a codification of of what Shinto means from a religious standpoint. I'm going to jump ahead quite a lot to uh, uh, 1868. And this is when we have, there's a revolutionary war that happens. And so after this, there's distinction between Buddhism and Shinto. So uh, I kind of skipped ahead here, but Buddhism has... Chinese Buddhism in particular has come into Japan. It started to influence the way that people are doing things. And during this war, there's a sense of we need to go back to, to what it means to be purely Japanese, right? So we need to get rid of all foreign influences. And so in this push, that's where you get the separation of temple and shrine and a, a clear demarcation between this is Shinto and this is Buddhist. Again, it's not as great as it'll be later on but we're starting to get this push and then we really I would say jumping ahead a little more it's it's noted that the the formative years of modern Shinto are kind of concentrated in the half century between 1868 when that war happened and 1915 and this is kind of when most scholars have kind of argued that Shinto was invented as we know it today and again I'm speaking very vaguely because we're going to go over this more in other sections but that is kind of your quick rundown of Shinto history that's just super vague on purpose. But again, because that's the perspective of scholars versus what the people who believe Shinto believe. And I vague, I purposely left it vague because I read a 300-page book that went from like 500 to 1915. I don't want to give you all the details. So trying to make it as quick as possible, knowing that there's a lot of gaps in there. Is there anything that you want to add, Ryan?
0: Um no, huh We'll put that book in the show notes though, so that if people really yes, want to read Yes, we
1: will. It. Um, definitely <laughs> Go ahead and hit us with some beliefs where you're going to, you know, fill in the gaps and things that I have uh missed.
0: All right. So, um like Jay mentioned or like you said, the crux of Shinto really is the kami. Um that's what the whole religion, if we're going to call it a religion, centers around. Um and In that way, or well, basically what the kami are is they are these divine powers that are in the forms of deities, also features in nature, or sometimes and pretty often actually exceptional humans. So former emperors, even just family ancestors. So there is this idea that you honor your ancestors as kami that you can sort of become you become part of the kami when you die and so these kami are numerous Um, and so Shinto if we were to put it in this sort of monotheistic polytheistic duality or binary Shinto definitely falls under the polytheistic uh, umbrella I guess I would say though that um, it's not it's it's sort of like when we talked about um, Hinduism being polytheistic, how like sort of technically it is polytheistic, but then on a practical level, on an individual level, it isn't always like that. And so these kami are pretty much everywhere. And they are associated with things typically like growth and fertility, but also natural phenomena. So not just like associated with sort of like, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, like sort of concepts like growth and fertility, but also like things that you can actually see and experience in the world. So like wind, thunder, also things in the landscape. So specific mountains, um, certain trees, which you'll see demarcated with the Shimanawa um, that Jay described. And I'll explain those in a little bit um, because they're kind of an important part of not only shrines, but also just demarcating where Kami are associated or where they are believed to dwell. Um, And so with that said, there are believed to be over 80,000 Kami. Um, Now that when I say 80,000, I don't mean including every single ancestral spirit that maybe an individual family or clan may have, but I'm talking about like the 80,000 Kami that are represented by this sort of bigger, bigger more quote unquote national shrines or the shrines that like everyone has access to or worships at. And so, like you mentioned, um you said that you know the the literature surrounding Shinto is very different than most of the things that we've talked about so far, I would say, because it's not totally an oral tradition like we talked about in the Lakota spirituality episode. I think it was like episode 2 of season 1. But it's also not sort of doctrinal, um, sort of dogmatic as we see with like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's certainly not like Judaism with all of the extra kind of writings that surround the sort of central text. But that's not to say that it doesn't have writings. So like you said, there are these collections of sort of literature that talk about the history of the tradition and it, most of these writings talk about the kami as human-like beings that are doing things, making decisions. Um, so it is very sort of historical in nature. And so the two sort of most central texts in all of this, although they're kind of surrounded by a constellation of smaller writings, are the Kojiki and, like you mentioned, the Nihongi or the Nihon Shoki. Um, And so the Kojiki is called the Record of Ancient Matters, and then the Nihongi is uh, the Chronicles of Japan. And fun fact Nihon is how you say Japan in Japanese. Oh, cool. These two are considered the most central historical texts in Shinto. They can include, they overlap a little bit, so they have some similar stories, and there's some variation between the two, but not a lot. But the most, I guess, sort of important story is the story of the creation of Japan. And I'm going to give you basically the the very cliff notes version of this just to give you kind of an idea or to illustrate kind of some of the things I said about the kami in terms of the things that they're related to in the landscape and sort of how they came into being. So to be clear, this story doesn't come at the very beginning of the history. Um, So it's not believed that the kami did not exist before, in some form, before Japan itself existed. Um, So there is a part of this history that includes a time before Japan sort of formally existed as the Japanese archipelago. But the most important story, really, or the story that really kicks off what we understand as Shinto today is the story of the creation of Japan by Izanagi and Izanami. Izanagi is a man, and Izanagi is a female. These are two Kami that existed um, in this sort of great heavenly realm, and they're asked by the other Kami to create a new land, a new place for them to live. And so Izanagi has this spear, and he stirs the waters of essentially the ocean, and the drips from the spear create an island. And They in turn perform this ritual where they round a pole and Izanagi walks to the left, Izanami walks to the right, the woman greets the man and this created two more islands and they didn't really like how they turned out and so they decide to perform the ritual again but this time Izanagi greets Izanami first And this creates the rest of the eight islands that we consider that are considered the Japanese archipelago. And so they complete Japan. And over the course of seeing these islands, they create other kami together. And one of these is Kagusuchi, which is the fire kami. And Izanami, while giving birth to Kagusuchi, dies. Because as you can imagine, giving birth to pure fire could probably be bad. And so Izanagi is upset. He kills Kagusuchi immediately at birth and beheads him, cuts him into eight pieces and scatters them across the Japanese archipelago, which creates the eight volcanoes in Japan. And then blood from his sword also creates a couple new Kami as the drips are flying off and everywhere. So things are dripping, Kami are being created. And so this is how we get to 80,000 because all the things that the Kami are doing or a lot of the things that the Kami are doing are creating new Kami. So Izanagi is understandably quite distraught. He decides to descend into Yomi, which is the netherworld of Shinto. Not quite like hell. And not quite like some of the hells we talked about, like the Christian hell, and not quite like some of the hells we talked about in Buddhism either, because there's not totally this sense of like damnation that's included in this idea of hell, but anyway, he finds Izanami's corpse um, and he's like just disgusted and not not really disgusted, but even more distraught than he was before, and so he returns to the land of the living and a fun aside here, there is actually a shrine that designates where he returned from the from the netherworld and when he came out of the hole back to japan he covered it with a rock and this particular shrine has large boulders and stones all around it and there is a couple that are believed to sort of be that place where izanagi returned to the land of the living Um, and so he comes back he washes himself upon his return because there is this strong Association with impurity and death together, which I'll get to in a minute because that deals with kind of this this idea that people in Japan or many people in Japan are like, like you were saying, culturally Shinto, but also religiously Buddhist at the same time. Um, and there's not seen to be this conflict. And part of that is because some of the things that are not in Shinto, this sort of ethical, moral, structure of how to live your life other than just sort of honoring the kami are not there in shinto and so as when buddhism was brought to japan that sort of filled those gaps anyway so he washes himself and again as the water drips off of him his body his clothing more kami are created and that's pretty much the end of that sort of creation story now of course more kami are created throughout the whole course of this history but Um, Like I said before, you know, you can see kind of how kami are created sort of spontaneously, but also not necessarily planned. But I mean, Kagusuchi was the son of Izanagi and Izanami. So they're also created out of sort of sexual relationships, like babies are created by humans. So there isn't this clear distinction between the spirits, the kami, and humans in terms of how they exist in the world, which is an important thing to note about Shintō. So a couple other things about Kami, there aren't really sort of power, all powerful Kami that are at the top of some sort of Kami hierarchy. There isn't one Kami that's in charge of all the other Kami. But with that said, there are some Kami that are sort of more important um, sort of culturally and historically within this story of Japan. Um, so one of these, this is probably arguably the most important Kami, is Amaterasu. Um, she is the sun goddess. And she her story comes later after Izanagi and Izanami's story. And basically, she is the sun. And she is... The reason that she is as important as she is is because she's directly associated with the imperial family in Japan. And so that association was sort of highlighted or emphasized when state Shinto became a thing group of kami that are really closely linked to the imperial family and so imperial Shinto or state Shinto is related specifically to rituals done by the imperial family that are related to these three kami and so for Amaterasu for instance is believed to reside at the shrine at Ise which is probably, although all of the shrines, again, although all of the shrines are sort of not in this hierarchy, because Amaterasu is believed to be sort of the most important kami, even though she also you know, isn't in charge of other kami, she consults other kami or is believed to consult other kami and rely on other kami for advice and assistance and things. Her shrine, the shrine at Issei, is kind of seen as the ultimate. And so if you look up like shrines to visit in Japan, Issei is almost always on the list because it is so important to the imperial family. And part of the reason that it's important is her and her two siblings were believed to give to Japan three sort of gifts or three important symbols of Shinto in Japan. And one of those Amaterasu's was a mirror and this mirror was used to like coax her out of a cave at one point in her story because she decided to go into hiding because some other kami were doing some bad things that's beside the point but this mirror is important for these imperial ritual rituals that take place at isei that only the imperial family are involved in Um, that's not to say that you can't visit isei you can absolutely visit isei it's a really popular shrine or i guess unique shrine in that it is rebuilt every 20 years so the entire shrine if you look up the shrine complex on like google earth for instance and you look at it you'll see what look like two shrine complexes and one of them and they're right next to each other literally like neighbors and the one shrine complex will be in use and then the other one will look like sort of a vacant lot but actually every 20 years the shrine is torn down and then rebuilt on the adjacent lot and that is sort of To symbolize this relationship between life and death, it's a really big deal to go and see the opening of the new shrine every 20 years. That's like one of the most popular times to go to Issei. So moving on from Kami. Like I mentioned before, and like you also mentioned, there aren't a lot of sort of ethical or moral beliefs or prescriptions for Shintoists. one of these one of the things that there also isn't that we have or that we that are in a lot of the traditions that we talked about last season is there aren't there isn't really this idea of transcendence associated with shinto so there isn't this idea that humans are sort of separated from the kami kami are considered kind of an integral part of everyday life which kind of makes sense if you take into account the fact that Kami are often associated with physical locations in the landscape, with trees, with these shrines that you can go to, and it's believed that they live at these shrines. Um, So it's not like the idea of, for instance, the relationship between Christians and Jesus or Christians and God. Now, I'm sure there are Christians that would argue that Jesus and God are everywhere and all around everyone, but not in the same way that... Japanese people can say that Mount Fuji is that a kami. The kami of Mount Fuji actually lives at Mount Fuji. And I can go to Mount Fuji and like leave offerings and prayers to that kami. And so also there's no idea of sort of salvation in Shinto. There isn't this idea that you like go somewhere else after, you know, because we don't have this idea of transcendent kami, you don't sort of go and live in this heavenly realm with the Kami after you die. Now, this is where it gets kind of complicated, though. So like I said before, when Buddhism was brought to China or to China, to Japan, that's a whole nother story when Buddhism was brought to China. (laughs) When Buddhism was brought to Japan, a lot of these Buddhist ideas, which we kind of talked about in our previous episode on Buddhism. Man, we did this really well, Jay. We got like all the stuff that's connected to things out of the way in season one. Like, yeah, I know that was that's gold. the beauty
1: of doing the the specific episodes because then you can just be like, "Oh, go back to this yeah, episode." Go back
0: to this episode. I'm not explaining it all, but anyway. So, as you know, if you've listened to the Buddhism episode, and if you don't, pause right now, go back, listen to the Buddhism episode, and come back to right now. <laughs> um, because Buddhism, we know, has a lot of these sort of ethical and moral principles associated with it. It also has very specific things that you do that are things that are associated with death. So sort of your funerary rituals, the beliefs about death, what happens after you die. It's a very well developed sort of idea about all of these things. Shinto does not. And I think a lot of this is probably due in part to be the association with death and impurity in Shinto. And so, for instance, death is seen as sort of unclean or um, impure. The Japanese term is Kegare. And so it's not totally dealt with all the time in a lot of the Shinto histories. But then again, remember that the Shinto writings are not exactly manuals for how to live your life as a good Shintoist, like we would consider maybe the Christian Bible or any of the Jewish scriptures or the Quran or anything like that. And so this is where a lot of the ethical and moral ideas come from in Buddhist or in Buddhism and that we see now I'm getting all confused <laughs> that we see Shintoist practice is they come from this adoption from Buddhism and there's a phrase and I wish I could remember who told it to me it might have been my Japanese teacher way back in the day basically that Japan is eighty percent Shinto or I'm sorry eighty percent Buddhist and one hundred percent Shinto and so mm. this idea that Shinto practices and beliefs pervade everything that you do as a Japanese person or pervade a lot of what Japanese people do, even if you're a practicing Buddhist. And this is also true. We'll find a similar thing going on in Haiti when we get to an episode on voodoo later this season in terms of the relationship between being Catholic and practicing voodoo in Haiti and in other parts of the world where they practice voodoo. And so we see a lot of adoption of Buddhist practice and buddhist belief to sort of fill in these holes quote-unquote holes in shinto um, and so a lot of funeral practices in japan are buddhist so you see lots of buddhist funerals and that's kind of the buddhists take care of the funerals shinto folks take care of birth and marriages and things like that while buddhism does its thing so like we said before There are lots of different types of Shinto and this is like major air quotes around types because it's not like I would I would argue that it's not um, similar to like Christian denominations where they're like a little bit different, but they have the sort of same core tenets. But I would argue that the types are more about who practices what and the types of practices that are associated with it, and also a lot of it's time period related. So um, after Japan opened itself up to the rest of the world in the 19th century, we see the adoption of state Shinto, and that has very specific connotations. Then we see what happens to Shinto and Shinto beliefs about or state Shinto during World War II. Then we see the reaction by the Allied Occupation Force. And so a lot of it is temporal in that way. With that said, when I, th- I think three of the most important things or three of the most important types of Shinto to highlight are shrine Shinto, lived or popular or folk Shinto, whatever term you want to use, and state Shinto. And so those are the three that I'm going to make sure that you have a sort of basic overview of what those are. So for Shrine Shinto, this is the most prevalent kind. It includes practices at shrines to demonstrate faith, the air quotes around faith in the kami. Um, This includes going to shrines, leaving offerings, prayers. We'll get more into what you do at a shrine in a second. Then there is the sort of popular Shinto which this is just the everyday practices of people that reflect belief in the kami. It includes a lot of regional variation and overlap with bigger Shinto practices. So it's good to keep in mind that Japan is a big place and there is a lot of local variation in Shinto practice. This also includes a lot of what happens in individuals' homes. So it's very common. For people in japan to have shinto small shinto shrines within their own home that they leave offerings to fairly regularly this is typically where you would sort of install your ancestral spirits it's believed that they sort of reside at your sort of home shrine there's also lots of local little small local shrines this is one thing one thing i want to point out here is that shinto Is all over in Japanese popular culture if you just know what to look for. So, for instance, if you have ever watched any of Hayao Miyazaki's films from Studio Ghibli, so movies like uh, My Neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away is a really big one. Those two in particular have lots of very explicit references to Shinto, and you'll see shrines in all kinds of scenes in those movies. Also, If you're a fan of horror films, Japanese horror films are full of themes from Shinto. And a lot of this pulls on sort of localized belief. And then last but not least is state Shinto, which this, like we mentioned, started in the 19th century when Shinto was sort of declared as a state religion. Gave rise or it was sort of used to support sort of nationalistic beliefs about Japan being the best country because there's the kami only reside in Japan. So therefore, if these spirits only reside in Japan, we're clearly the best because why would they want to live anywhere else? One other important thing that this did was it established the emperor as a sort of living kami. And so, like I mentioned before, the imperial families believed to be these direct descendants of Amaterasu, and it was believed that the emperor was actually a kami in the flesh. After World War II, one of the first things that the allied occupation forces did was they forced Emperor Hirohito to declare that he was not actually a kami, that he was a human person. Um, And this had a lot of implications for Shinto practice, in addition to lots of other things that the occupation forces did. And this even has consequences today. So Prime Minister of Japan, I don't want to, I don't know too much about this, so I don't want to put, I don't want to say too much and like say something wrong, but the Prime Minister of Japan has been sort of involved in wanting to make Shinto sort of this like reinvigorated thing in Japan, um, to make it more of an official, like this is a Japanese thing, the government is not afraid of it kind of thing. And so he has attended imperial family rituals at shrines. And he, he is, you know, attended various Shinto events and things like that, like marriages and all this stuff. And that even still, as recently as several years ago, causes ripples in world governments. Everybody gets kind of I I forget who it was, but there was another there was an American official who, like, criticized him for participating in these things. And so this association with Shinto and World War II and nationalism is definitely still there in the world. Um, And I think that's one thing that maybe that'll be a happy accident that all of the people who listen to this episode will kind of understand that that's not totally awesome. And to be fair, you know, we, we know that from living in the world, that all religions, for the most part, or many religions, can be sort of weaponized for things that are what would seem contradictory to those traditions, beliefs, and practices. Um, And Shinto is no different. And so I think we should keep in mind that, you know, not to demonize Shinto.
1: Cool. Let's take a break.
0: Okay. So let's move on to some beliefs. Before I get started, Jay, you wanted to give us kind of a description of what a shrine is?
1: Yes, I think it's important to get a picture of what they look like. So as you're going up to a shrine, the outside is often kind of park-like. So imagine a nice... There's actually, I think if you... I know in a lot of cities, or not in a lot of cities, but in some places, there are quote-unquote Japanese-inspired parks. That is very similar, I think, to what would be the outside of a, a shrine. Anyway, you enter through a Tory gate, and our good friends at Wikipedia describe this as marking the transition from the mundane to the sacred, which we all know is my favorite part of what defines religion, so (laughs) I was wanted to make sure to point that out. But once once you're inside the gate, you'd wash your hands and mouth, and then you'd enter the quote-unquote sanctuary for worship. And I've read this can be considered a sanctuary, but I've also read that it is... Considered the Kami Hall, and then the Kami Hall is where obviously the Kami are. And so that's kind of so again, you're going from a park into past the gate into a specific area. And then at larger shrines, which I would assume is more like the imperial ones or state sanctioned ones where a lot of uh, big events are happening, you might pass by an office where you can put money in before you pray. Or you can speak to a priest and ask uh, for prayers or buy ambulance, which happens at some shrines. But that's just kind of a general sense of what it looks like when you're going in. Continue. What, what kind of shrines do we got going on?
0: So like I mentioned before, there's lots of different practices in terms of or like levels of practice. So you, know, you have it on the local level. You have sort of the bigger sort of more communal practice. And then you have the sort of imperial level you have the same sort of breakdown with shrines as well. Like you just described is kind of like what would be a branch shrine. So these are the sort of communal shrines, the shrines that have the big local festivals. They're sort of connected to imperial shrines in terms of like, uh, not like physically connected, but in terms of, like sort of theological connections. They have like connections between the Kami at different shrines. And so they're connected to the Imperial shrines, which these are the shrines where um, only rituals practiced by the, the Imperial family are. Um, so Issei is one of these uh, most regular people don't have much to do with these shrines. You can go visit them. Like I mentioned with Issei, that's a very popular spot to go to in Japan, but you're not really going there and going into the shrine and offering prayers or offerings and things like that. And then you have sort of the local shrines, um, which these are associated with sort of smaller towns. There'll be roadside shrines. And then sort of at the very smallest level, the sort of household shrines. And these shrines are all... The kami at these shrines are asked to sort of deal with local things. And so as you kind of go up the chain... You have the Kami being asked for bigger things, but not necessarily because you could go to a what's called a branch shrine and ask for like personal favors or, you know, ask for, you know, give forgiveness or th- not forgiveness. Be thankful for things that are going on in your life at those shrines as well. And so, like you mentioned, torty gates are probably the most iconic or the most recognized symbol of Shinto, um, and these are the big red gates that are outside of Shinto shrines. There's actually an emoji for a Shinto or for a torti gate. And these are, like you were saying, sort of demarcating that sort of sacred and profane space, showing that this space behind or through the torii gate is the dwelling place or where the, the, where the kami live. And these are, you usually have at least one of these at every shrine. But you can have as many as you want. Um, The Fushima Inari Shrine has nearly a thousand torii gates and they're kind of spaced one on top of each other. So you're just walking through this like tunnel of torii gates. And I'll try and find a picture or like a Google Street View sort of thing where you can go through it and put it in the show notes and see what's interesting about that shrine in particular is the kami that resides there is associated with rice and with business. And we know. Rice is massively important culturally in Japan, and business is hugely important in Japan as well. And the actual torii gates that are there, all the thousand, roughly a thousand of them that are there were donated by a business as sort of a patronage sort of thing to that shrine. Um, Another way that sacred space is demarcated at shrines is with Shimenawa, which these are the straw ropes that you mentioned earlier. And they also have these little folded white paper streamers on them that are kind of lightning bolt shaped called Shide. Um, and these you'll find all over the place. They'll Oftentimes you'll see them on Tori Gates, but you'll also see them at like um, trees that have, that are believed to hold dwell spirits, caves, waterfalls, things like that. They'll be hung around them. So for instance, for all of the My Neighbor Totoro fans, Totoro's tree is one of these trees that has a big Shimenawa around it. So it's, some people read that to mean that Totoro is actually a kami. With that said, worship in Shinto kind of follows four steps, basically, whether that is at your home shrine or at your branch shrine, say you want to go to Fushima Inari for their festival or just because you want to go because pilgrimage is also kind of an important thing in Shinto to go to specific shrines, which is something we're not really going to talk about, but it is a thing. So the first thing you do when you get to a shrine or when you approach a shrine is there's a sort of purification and so that's kind of a common theme we've repeated over the course of this whole podcast is that purity is very very important within Shinto. And so typically what people do, this is a lot like when you go to a mosque for instance, involves washing out your mouth and washing off your hands with water and so when you go into one of these bigger branch shrines they will have a little area when you first get in and they'll have these little bamboo dippers and you like take a little bit of water and put it in your mouth, switch it around and then wash your hands off as well. And that that's sort of the regular everyday standard kind of thing. And you don't need special water to do it. You can do it at home. But that's like an important first step when you approach a shrine. Um, and this can also be can also be a more formal process where you are sort of purified by priests and they have particular, um, they're called in like the scholarly literature, they're called lightning wands. I don't have the Japanese in front of me right now. But basically, they're these bamboo wands that have basically the white longer versions of those white shide, the lightning shaped paper. And the um, priests will wave those over you um, and you're you are supposed to um, practice abstinence before you're purified. Before you do that, and it lasts for a particular amount of time, and you get purified in that way for different things. fun fact um it's not uncommon for people to get their cars purified when they buy them in Japan by Shinto priests so that is a thing that people do but then after you're purified and you go actually up to the shrine itself, it's very common to leave an offering and this is basically to keep the kami happy more or less. you can offer all kinds of things the offerings vary widely from you know rice water salt those are pretty common ones Um, also cut flowers that's a pretty common one for roadside shrines but also money a whole bunch of different kinds of food Um, you can leave expensive fabrics you name it it can probably be an offering and then after you leave the offering you sort of you clap your hands twice You give a deep bow to sort of, you're doing a couple things there. One, you're telling the kami that, hey, I'm here. And, you know, showing your respect by bowing to the kami. And then you pray. And these can be sort of formal standard prayers. Um, So for our Christian listeners, think about the Our Father. And that's, you know, pretty standard. You know, you say the same words every time. But also it can be sort of more impromptu as well. Usually includes Oftentimes thanking them for the things they've done for you. And then you can ask them for things. But again, it can be kind of free form. And then after that, usually there is some sort of feast or meal. And this is like believed to be actually eating with the kami. And so it can be very formal, again, like the purification rituals that I mentioned. This can be something that you do at a shrine with a priest. This is not something that you're going to do, just like you're going to call up the priest and say, hey, we're going to eat with the kami this afternoon. But like you would go at a particular time of year for a specific purpose and actually have this meal. Or if you're at your home shrine, you leave food on, on the shrine, then you take that food and eat it as part of a bigger meal later that day. So that's pretty much the basics of worship. The other big thing in terms of practice at Shinto Shrines are festivals.
1: Hold on, before you get to festivals, let me talk about some of the other reasons you might go. Okay. That a little bit, a little more mundane. So there are actually like three types of rituals at shrines. The festival being the big one, but there are family and personal, as well as shrine rituals that are really associated with the imperial shrines. First, I'll say that, the which we'll talk about with festivals, New Year is when roughly 70% of japanese people visit a shrine. For family or personal rituals, about 50% of japanese people observe these rituals and they vary, but they'd include visiting for a newborn baby, uh, visiting for a child's 3rd, 5th or 7th birthday, and I didn't I couldn't really find the significance between those 3 numbers, but the the those are reasons and I think that you it's kind of an all or none, I don't think you necessarily just go for one or maybe you do go for one. I don't know. Then there can be, as Ryan mentioned, purification for things. So when you buy a new car, if you're going to have a new house built or some building built, going for purification for your building site, people might go uh, for a wedding, particularly for a purification for their wedding, and then to offer prayers to avoid misfortune. So, you know, maybe you're going on a trip and you want to avoid misfortune on your trip. Or if you're a student, praying that you do well on your exams. From my reading, it says that several things happen during this particular thing. So you'll go, um, a priest will offer a prayer. In some cases, dancing maidens called Miko will perform in front of the altar. And then the participants will make a symbolic offering and offer a sip of sacred rice wine. And this whole thing signals a mutual promise between the kami and the worshiper. And then, of course, we do have just weddings in general, which are separate from the getting blessed for your wedding um, that people might go to or go to the shrine for. This isn't necessarily as popular, and it seems to be historically that this didn't become popular until the more modern creation of Shinto. So we were thinking past 1850 is really when people started going to the shrine for weddings. The second one for the imperial, so these are more standardized and occur simultaneously across Japan at specific shrines. So the most important is the, excuse me for my pronunciation, I believe it is the uh, Kinensai, which is February 17th. And I'm not even going to pronounce this one, but it's uh, November 23rd. And these are both classical court ceremonies where the emperor prays. Uh, For and gives thanks for the the year's harvest. And then some other ones include one on February 11th, which is the celebration of the founding of the nation by the mythical emperor Jinmu. And this tradition apparently dates back to 660 BC. So quite a long time that that one's been going on. Another one is November 3rd, which is the birthday of the, um, is it Miji? emperor meiji meiji and then there is december 23rd which is the birthday of the present emperor and so not all of these necessarily as ryan mentioned since the imperial or imperial sorry people aren't necessarily going to the temple they these aren't really known for drawing large crowds uh and a lot of times people might actually just celebrate in their home for these uh ceremonies And then we have the ones that Ryan talked about or is going to talk about, which are the uh, shrine festivals. I'm going to throw off a few before Ryan jumps in, but the new year one is the largest one that people come to. And that's more of like a national one. There are local traditions that people do that are kind of spread throughout the year. And so this might be your neighborhood or your village or your city. And these are kind of large festivals that might last for a few days. Um, And then we have smaller ones that are a bit more intimate. And this is some people refer to them as like a neighborhood party, which they might look like a parade for your neighborhood and things like that. Or, you know, to put it in American context, a barbecue for the neighborhood (laughs) might be similar. Typically these more local ones are going to be run by your local community and not necessarily the shrine priests. And it's going to be dependent on where you live. Right. So, you know, or I am in Tennessee my neighborhood festivals will happen at different times and look different than Ryan in Ohio, right? Those are what's going on and roughly 25% of Japanese people participate in a local festival of this kind. Now Ryan is going to tell us some more details, but that's just kind of give you a big frame, um, big picture frame of the festivals in general.
0: Yeah, so these bigger festivals, um, they're typically annual, they can be semi-annual to you can have them like on odd years things like that um events that honor either a particular kami at a shrine they'll commemorate like you like jay's saying commemorate important dates things like that um, and they can include all kinds of different festivities they can you know have specific offerings that are left at the shrine um, they can have these sort of dancing maidens that Jay was talking about which those are an important thing as shrines that's a whole nother discussion but Typically, all of these include a procession of the Makoshi, which is basically a raised platform that's used to carry a representation of the kami outside the shrine. And this is seen sort of as a visit by the kami to the local community. So it's kind of like a parade and like people from the community will be out and they'll be very excited to see the shrine because it's a represent or the shrine, the Makoshi, because it is like this representation of the kami. And so these festivals include all different kinds of things just a couple sort of fun ones um, one is the hakata Gion Yamakasa, which is this is at kushida shrine in uh, hakata fukuoka which fukuoka is a prefecture in japan which is kind of like a state sort of not really though but yeah you get the idea um <laughs> it's a region and um this particular festival involves racing giant floats and when we're saying giant floats we're talking like 20 to 30 feet tall that can weigh up to a ton around the city and so you have guys that are literally care like teams of people carrying these giant shrine or giant shrines giant floats around the city um and so like go check out uh, we'll add some youtube videos to that in the um show notes just to give you kind of an idea of what that looks like i'm pretty sure that's been like the sound of that festival has been sort of designated as one of the most important soundscapes of Japan. It's like a, it's been also been designated by UNESCO, I think, as like an intangible cultural property as well that has to be like preserved and stuff. So that one is pretty intense and pretty impressive because it's like these massive, massive floats being carried down the street. Um, But also another one that's kind of fun is the Kanamara Matsuri. So this one is at the Kanayama Shrine. And it celebrates the defeat of a demon that had possessed a woman's vagina and bit off her first two husband's penises. Oh, wow. And so this one, basically what happens, is called the Festival of the Steel Phallus. And basically what happens in the story is that after her first two husband's penises get bit off, She goes to a blacksmith and is like, I need like to do something about this. And so he creates a steel penis that she then inserts into her vagina and the demon bites it, breaks his teeth and is no longer a problem. Mm. And so on the top of the Makoshi in this festival is a giant penis. And this if you look at pictures of this festival, it looks like a bachelorette party in the US. There are like penis suckers and penis straws and penis everything all over the place. And what's really interesting about this is that shrine in particular historically was a place where sex workers would go to pray for protection from STIs because it's sort of seen as protecting from this demon that lives that lived in this woman's vagina. Right? So now that has kind of fallen by the wayside. That was more popular in the sort of 16th and 17th centuries. But now patronage at this shrine is more focused on prayers for easy births. And also long-lasting marriages. But the most interesting thing that I thought, which because we didn't really touch on this, but after State Shintra was kind of taken apart, all of the shrines sort of became private, not really privately owned, but they became their own individual entities. And this one in particular does a lot of work to raise money for HIV research. And so kind of getting back to that sort of more original sort of association with protection from STIs, which I thought was really interesting.
1: That is really cool. Um, I like that.
0: Yeah, I thought you'd think that was cool.
1: Yeah, that is cool. Anything else that you want to add about some practices? Um, I think that's all I had. That's all I have. So, you know, good run. Welcome back. Season two. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of exciting things coming up. Hope that you will keep listening. But in the meantime, I want to thank you for listening. As Ryan likes to say, if you like what we're doing, consider leaving <laughs> us a review. Please. At um, <laughs> Apple, <laughs> under Religiously Lit Literate Podcast. You can also find us on social media where we will be doing all the things. So we're on Twitter, we're at Religious Lit Pod. On Facebook, Facebook.com slash religiously literate. You can also email us at Religious Lit Podcast. Yes. At gmail.com. Gmail.com.
0: That was good. It's been a minute <laughs> since you've had to remember that.
1: yes and again please if you have anything that you think that we should be doing if you have questions whatever please shoot us an email episode suggestions if you want to correct us on something that we did that is cool too but you can either email it to us hit us up on twitter write a message or you know something on facebook either way we check them all so let us know and then, of course, uh, feel free to listen to us and tell all your friends that are available on all the things Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. So thanks for listening and we'll see you uh, in our next episode.